Hey, bowlers, bowling this month is back. Bowling this month is bowling's trusted technical resource that's relied upon by thousands of serious bowlers, pro shop operators, and professional coaches. From independent ball reviews to great instructional articles on all facets of our sport, you'll find it all at bowlingthismonth.com. For less than the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can have online access to Bowling This Month's premium technical bowling content that will help you improve your game. Bowling This Month is so confident you'll be satisfied, they're offering a 14-day money-back guarantee to all subscribers. Check out BowlingThisMonth.com and sign up today. Now is the time to reinforce your bowling arsenal, and BowlerX.com is the online leader in price, service, and selection. With free insured shipping on every item we carry, including a complete line of pro shop supplies, as well as balls, bags, shoes, accessories, and more. Also check out the large selection of closeout and discontinued items at a fraction of their original cost. BowlerX.com, your online bowling superstore and proud sponsor of Above180.com. You can hear Above 180 on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond, on demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg is ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, here's your host, Tim Berg. Joining me today on the Above180.com podcast is Mike Diaz. Mike is a 33-year member of the PBA with two career PBA 50 titles, two regional titles, and two PBA 50 regional titles. Mike has 35 300 games to his credit and is a gold-certified USBC coach. For more on Mike, check out denverbowling.com. Mike, Tim Berg here. Thanks for hopping on with me today. Hey, Tim. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, Mike, much was made of the PBA Player of the Year race. It was one of the hotly, most hotly contested races that we've seen in quite a long time. Jason Belmonte edging out Ryan Simonelli. First off, you don't have to tell me your vote, but tell me how, how you thought that played out and really, you know, <laughs> do you have any thoughts on that as far as Jason winning? You know, he had the very strong beginning of the year, winning the two majors. Ryan came on like a freight train towards the end of the year in Vegas and in Reno. So what are your thoughts on, on how that all uh, transpired? I thought the percentages reflected the fact that it was a close race. I think it was about 47 to 43% of the the voters chose Belmo, and, and I think that kind of reflects how close the race is. It's, I think in the end, it's it was hard for the players to discount the fact that Belmo won two majors. And I think even though Ryan won a major, literally the second player in two decades to win the U.S. Open, it came down to the fact that two majors kind of trumped one major. Uh, I think it was really close. I think Ryan had a heck of a year, and he would have been just as deserving if the players had chosen Ryan over Jason. I think it was that close. So let's get into, Mike, you're you're a gold-certified coach. It's very prestigious to be a gold-certified coach. There's not that many of you guys out there. So let's talk about 
coaching two-handed players like a Jason Belmonte. Number one, do you see a lot of it in the area where you're doing your coaching? And then how have you approached coaching two-handed bowlers? I, I see some, and I've been working with them. The primary thing with two-handed players, uh, just like one-handed players, I try to keep their swing plane straight. And with a two-handed player, that really means making sure that when they pull the ball to the top of the swing, and with a two-handed player, it literally is a pull to the top of the swing, that their elbow stays directly above the ball so that as they come down and they create all those revolutions and all that power, everything's on the line in their intended direction. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What are the key elements to a good approach when you're helping people out, because I know a lot of times you look at all the different styles on the PBA tour, you have, you know, the, the Ryan Schaefer's of the world, the Ryan Simonell, the, the, all, everyone has a different way to get there, but talk about how they all, their body is all in the right position when they're at the foul line, which is when it's most critical. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different approaches. I really like, you know, people like Mark Baker with their 10 key spots in the swing and uh, Mike, Mike Shady, his discussion of seven kind of key points in the swing that he goes at. In terms of how I try to explain it to players, I tend to go with there are two things that are really important. Is your swing straight from the top of the back swing down to the release point? And is your swing relatively efficient? That being, is your body and the ball working in harmony? And when it all comes down to it, if a player can do those two things, they can do a lot of things that are different physiologically because everybody's built differently. But if they can be relatively efficient in their swing and the swing is pretty straight, at least from the top of the back swing down, they've got a pretty good chance to be successful. So, Mike, amateur bowlers, what is one of the biggest mistakes that they make when they're adjusting? I think amateur bowlers, in terms of making adjustments, tend to be too slow because the trick really gets to be seeing the ball motion and reading the ball motion. They tend to think about lanes. Amateurs think about the lanes left to right, and professionals think about the lanes front to back. And really being able to see how far down the ball goes before it changes directions, before it reaches the break point, is the biggest key. And a lot of times I think amateurs, particularly on on league conditions, amateurs get stuck playing the same part of the lane and watching the ball react weaker and weaker and weaker because it slows down faster. And they think the ball isn't hooking enough when in fact they're just in a part of the lane that's too, too dry and there's too much friction for where they're playing and they actually need to move in on the lane away from the gutter to get the ball to not slow down quite so quick. And for amateurs, it's really making the moves too slow and sometimes not enough. Well, and I guess that kind of leads into my next question was, um, and you've you've partly answered this, but what is the easiest way for a house bowler to make a house shot not look like, like a house shot? I mean, there's sometimes you can make a house shot look pretty doggone difficult out there. I've made the house shot look difficult many times. So really the the, the trick is I, I teach bowlers to make sure they start the ball in the oil 
which on any typical house shot is starting the ball inside the the 10th board, let the ball get out to 7, 8, 9, around 30 to 35 feet down the lane so that you can take advantage of the friction and then just let it hook. And try not to use anything overly aggressive and a little bit of polish usually helps on on lead conditions. And don't be afraid to move in and still get it out to that seven, eight, nine down the lane. I think a lot of times people tend to try to play house shots a little too square. With the volume of oil in the lanes, you can kind of get in a little bit and let the ball get out to the dry board so that you start it in the oil, get it to the dry, and take advantage of what's there. I think a lot of people, times people get trapped not moving in and and opening up what you have there because when you've got free hook let the ball get out to the hook and, and recover well and it's funny you bring that up because there'll be a lot of times now where you'll see a league bowler and let's just say say you have two good games going in and and you you need you know the lanes are transitioning and you need to make that ball move mm-hmm. but there's still that that kind of that old school type of bowler and even in your own mind you're thinking well wait a minute i i'm at you know 480 after two i gotta make a ball change but really we do we have to trust ourselves to know that that look the lanes are transitioning and we move and then in your in your opinion when it gets to that is it is it moving with your feet or sometimes is it balling down or can it does it depend on the house and the characteristics that you see at that particular center I think it really depends on the house and the characteristics. I mean, if we look at a five-man league, for example, and you throw a shot on lane four, by the next time you've thrown us another shot on lane four, an entire game has been bowled on that lane. And I think people lose sight of the fact that given that reality and given the amount of oil you see come back on the ball after every shot, it's impossible to believe that the lanes don't transition quite a bit. And and I get people to think about, you know, if you haven't moved three boards to an arrow at the arrows, you probably haven't moved enough in the course of three games, especially on the right side of the lane. And you usually need to make another move and then, looking at the ball front to back if you just can't get the ball down the lane enough you need to make a ball change yeah mike you're also a pro shop operator you do the coaching as well you got over 30 years in the pro shop industry so talk about when you're doing your coaching and and for bowlers out there how do how technical do you want to get with your guys and the people that you're helping or do do you want to keep it as simple as you can when it comes to you know layouts and drillings and you know, surface is very important for everyone. So I think everyone needs to be knowledgeable and versed in, in when to change and take down surfaces and to take surfaces up. But how technical do you like to get with your bowlers? or do, uh, How do you handle that? I really try to talk to the level of the player. So if I have a beginner, I'm going to keep it relatively simple. If I've got a, a 170 to 190 who's primarily bowling on house shots, I try to get them to understand, start it in the oil, get it to the dry. If I've got a bowler who is bowling more sport conditions, then I get start to get more technical because you really have to. And you and I do kind of a unique lesson in terms of surface. That's a good one that you mentioned. 
I do a lesson with bowlers where I have them take two of their bowling balls and we start with a 4,000 pad and we go all the way to a 500 pad so that in sort of a non-technical way, you can help them understand how much difference it makes to change the surface on their bowling ball because, you know, they see pretty quickly how different their ball looks and Sometimes they realize their ball looks pretty good with a surface they never imagined. Well, Mike, and it's funny you bring that up because I was watching it may have been last year when um, it was Martin Larson who was on TV and he took his he took his uh, Optimus Pearl and he actually put it at like two thousand I think or fifteen hundred and that was a ball that I had in my bag and I hadn't really had a lot of success with it at its Pearl cover so I thought why not why not try the same thing. And lo and behold, I actually found a house and a condition where that actually worked on a bowling ball. So it's always good, I think, to just be taking different – just go out and practice. I mean, that needs to be part of our practice regimen. It's not just to go out and throw our three or six practice games and see how many strikes we can get. It's taking you know your, your surface pads and doing what you can to equipment and seeing how it reacts so in case you need to do that in a, in a competitive uh, event. Yeah, that's a great point because the surface you put on a bowling ball is key to how the ball is going to respond to the lane. And I look at more surface on a bowling ball as bringing the break point closer to you. And if I'm bowling on a sports shot where I don't have enough friction, if I can bring the break points closer to me, I can achieve a whole different ball motion. I mean, I rarely ever throw a ball out of the box. I might throw it a couple times out of the box just to see what the box reaction is for my customers. But generally speaking, I'm going to pretty quickly change that surface because for one, if I set up a surface to a certain grid, I can repeat that process on my spinner, either just the surface of the ball or the surface with polish. And if I really want to understand what my bowling balls can do, I want to play around with the surface of the ball before I have to do it in the heat of battle in that 10 or 15 minutes practice I've got before competition. And I have to scramble to set up surfaces. And another thing I teach my bowlers is make sure in practice you're anticipating a game plan for how the lanes are going to break down, especially during the course of a tournament and set up the surfaces not just on your first ball, but the first two or three balls that you're going to use so that when you have to go to those balls, you're ready and you know what those balls are going to do. The surface is so critical, and literally surface has been the difference for me in most of my key situations in PBA 50 tournaments, certainly in, in my title situations, it's been absolutely critical. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. You won the uh, PBA 50, uh, the Grand Spass Open. Talk about that and what, what comes to mind as really the key. I mean, I was there for a lot of the qualifying and match play and such. But really, what um, go back to that and talk about just some of the memories of that event for you. It had to be very special winning, you know, winning a, a PBA 50 title. It's always nice to win the second one because then you don't feel like a one-hit wonder. But uh, in Grant's Pass in particular, first of all, Kevin does a fabulous job with that center, and I absolutely love bowling there. And in that particular tournament, we had a relatively high-scoring pattern, but 
with a high viscosity oil. So if you threw the ball a little too hard, there were a lot of 710s that week, and it was really easy to lose carry if your speed just got a little too high for your roll. And in that tournament, and of course, every tournament we bowl, as, as it goes, the lanes get tighter and tighter and tighter. So they're hooking less and they're hooking less and hooking less. And it gets to a point where I start to look for just a, on a longer pattern like that. And it was a 43-foot pattern or 42-foot pattern. Um, I start to look for actually a little bit of hold down the lane. And I started to find that, especially in the round of eight, when I bowled Ron Moore, I started to find that hold. And kind of an interesting thing about surfaces, I'll, a lot of times I'll take a ball and, and I'll go to 500 for surface. And I'll use that to kind of break down the part of the lane outside of where I'm trying to bowl. And being a left-hander, you know, a lot of times in match play, I've got that side of the lane all to myself. And it just so happened I was bowling Kevin in the round of 16. And my ball reaction completely went away with the ball I was trying to go to. And I went back to the ball I'd actually broken down the lanes with, knowing that it was either going to work and the reaction was going to be terrific, or I was going to tear up the lane so fast that I was going to run out of lane by the end of game five. And fortunately, the former happened, and I was able to overcome Kevin in that match. He bowled great in that match. And I just made the right decision at the right time to strike just enough to, to outrun him. And in the round of eight against Ron Moore, my ball reaction got a little better with that particular ball. And in the round of four, I had a really good match against Harry Sullins, who threw the ball great. And I had a lot of confidence in that match coming off the round of eight against Ron, shooting 288 the second game, that I was going to have a pretty good ball reaction. I shot 257, I think, in that single game match against Harry and he had an unfortunate uh, nine pin in the 11th. And sure enough, I get to the point where I'm bowling Dale and I feel good that I'm going to win the tournament. Um, but I know I got to bowl uh, probably close to a 230 game against Dale to win the match. And, you know, Dale kind of gets going slow and I get up on a lead on him. And he runs five or six in a row to almost close even in the match. And then. Sure enough, true to the form of the whole tournament, he left a pocket 7-10 in the ninth, and that was enough for me to secure the victory. And as we move along here, Mike, I guess, then let's talk about who's one of the biggest influences on your game when you look back on things. Oh, you know, in a lot of ways, it it has been for a long time, and, and still is Parker in a lot of ways, because his swing and mine are so similar that he's the one I can best watch to see what he's doing well and where he's struggling, you know, and in, in the years that the volumes of oil got higher on the lanes and he was starting to struggle a little bit, I could see that his ball speed was a little bit too high. And if you notice now, he's become absolutely masterful at being able to bring his ball speed down and taking what was a weakness. And now his ability to change speeds more effectively has become a strength and you're seeing him, start to win again a little bit, even at the age of, I don't know what, he's 51 or 52. So Parker's been a heavy influence on me. And like, 
like everybody else, I watched, you know, on the left side, you know, I watched Earl when I was young, but I also watched a lot of the right-handers. Um, I just absolutely get mesmerized, you know, at least when I'm not bowling against him, watching Pete Weber's downswing and release. It's the most patient release I've ever seen in my life. And of course, as a coach, I do watch a lot of right-handers and, I watch a lot of different styles, even Belmonte watching that two-handed release. Um, it's, I just gather information from every player I can, but there are a few players, the Hall of Famers, and there are 10 of them on the PBA 50 tour on any given week, and you're going to have to beat three or four of them to win a title. Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic experience, both as a player and as a coach, to be able to watch so many great players and so many great swings. Even guys like Amleto now, at his age, um, still is great position at the bottom of the swing, being able to keep his hand in and not get it too far around the ball too quick, and that great release. So there's just so many great players to watch that um, it's hard to pick one or two players. Well, and it's funny you bring up Parker. I was at the World Series of bowling covering for extra frame doing some of the help with uh, the broadcast. And I said to Parker after one of the practice sessions, I said, Parker, what are you seeing out there? How are things looking? And he said, as a matter of fact, as he could, he said, when I throw the ball well, I have a great reaction. And when I don't, I don't. <laughs> so that's yep. what we like about Parker, though. He's going to tell it how it is, and he's going to say, I threw it bad. You know, plain and simple. I, I can't, I'm not going to, you know, kick the ball return or blame the lane for something. If I make a bad shot, I... He he was he was right. He wasn't. It wasn't uh, the reaction he was looking for. So, um, I guess a, a question: We're talking. You're in the you know the greater Denver area. Thirty some years in bowling, you know from from the rubber and plastic and you know the the reactive resin to you know to where we are today. Is the game? I don't know. Almost becoming too easy for people. Where it's like you can you look at people and you just shake your head when you see these people shooting. You know, had two nine hundreds within the last uh, you know last amount of time, and people shooting eight fifties left and right. And and you're like, wait a minute. When I shot it, actually meant something. When I averaged two hundred five in a league, I was high average in the whole city. Sort of stuff. Does what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's true. When I shot 855, it was, you know, in 1987, it was with a plastic ball. And, yeah, it was the second highest series in the state at the time. And, of course, it's been run over, and we've had a 900 series shot here in Colorado. And um, I don't take anything away from anybody who shoots a 900 series because, I doubt it's in my lifetime I will ever carry 36 times in a row. But, yeah, it has gotten a little too easy. It's it's There's got to be a little bit of a challenge to keep people practicing. And I think when the lane conditions get so blindly easy that people are disappointed when they don't shoot 700, it gets a little bit crazy. So I think it... it tends to make people a little bit lazy. Now, I'm not one that advocates we need to go back to flat conditions because those conditions are out there for those of us who want to compete at a higher level. Just like I don't want to bowl, I don't, you know, I don't want to go play golf on a course that the PGA is prepped for the U.S. Open because I'm not good enough to play it. 
I'd never make a putt on those greens. But I'd like to see just slightly tamed down conditions for league, just so people have to think a little bit, a little bit more when they make adjustments, and it, it's just a little bit more of a challenge. Well, you know, I've talked to Rick Benoit a couple times, and Rick is very opinionated as well, and he kind of he's in kind of the same boat that there's these recreational players, the people that come in and they're bowling because recreational bowling, it's it's surviving, it's going great. You go into a bowling center now, we could go wherever we're at, and you're going to see birthday parties, you're going to see people there having fun, etc. But it's the competitive bowling, and there's no and people don't see the difference. I guess you could say, and so Rick is you know, one of Rick's big ideas is that we need to find a way to create the difference. And if you want to bowl and like what you're saying, you want to bowl on a 40 foot flat pattern every week and go out there and take your lumps. So be it. You're going to know what you're getting into. And then if you, if you're the guy who wants to go out and just say, bowl one night a week, have maybe two, possibly three bowling balls. And it might be, you know, a couple years old and have, you know, maybe a couple beers or something, then so be it. No, no, nothing against that guy either. But right now, everyone is kind of lumped together. So is there something, in in your opinion, that we can do maybe that way to kind of differentiate the, you know, the true sport of bowling versus the recreational bowling? I don't, I kind of liked where USBC was going with this a few years ago with the sport bowling program because you get a lane condition and you put a label on it and you say, Hey, by calling this a sport condition, we're intimating that this is tougher than a recreational condition because people understand the difference between recreation and sport. They understand that sport has more challenge. And at least by that program, having been there, people understand that there's a difference between what they see professionals bowling on and what recreational bowlers bowl on. But your average 160 to 190 recreational bowler that hasn't had any exposure to tournaments doesn't know the difference. And watching on TV on Sunday, you know, they go, Hey, I can, I can shoot 270. Why can't these guys shoot 220? And I think, you know, Rick makes a point in that there needs to be some tagging, some naming of level of difficulty of what you're playing on. Because somebody can turn on the TV on Sunday afternoon and see the U.S. Open and watch what the PGA players are doing, and they can see how tall the rough is. They can watch the ball roll on the greens and they can see how slick the greens are and how much more difficult they are than what they go out and put on with their buddies on Saturday afternoon. And we have an invisible playing field, and it makes it more difficult for us to communicate that. So, yes, I do think we need some sort of nomenclature, naming, something to go back to that's at least similar to what USBC had in place with the sport bowling program, because I think that's a necessary step because people would go bowl a sport league. And typically there's, there's lots of them available in the summer and not so much in the winter, at least in the Denver area. And they got a real education on what bowling and sport conditions was like. And I think it gave them a whole new respect for what TBA players experience. 
and you bring that up, and that's kind of the same way it is out in this area too. You have you'll have your sport patterns during the summer, when <laughs> it's almost like it should be the opposite because during the summer you get, you have guys that that may take some time off and and golf a little bit more, maybe do a golf league or just say you know what I'm going to put the equipment away for a couple months and and uh, recharge my batteries. But you're right, that's when it seems like the short patterns, you know, the short season leagues are the 14, 15 week leagues are out there. And then I guess I had another idea, and this kind of when someone brought this up to me, just kind of, kind of as a sidebar, and I thought, you know, this may be a good idea too. Why why couldn't we have almost short season leagues? You know, we have the fall, you know, have a fall short season league, have maybe an, a winter short season league, et cetera, et cetera, and go, you know, maybe have three short season leagues with a little bit of a break in between, and go from there. And maybe maybe you do the middle one is your seventeen week sport pattern, which gets your bowlers who want to be somewhat competitive and bowl the USBC Open and get get some ready for their tournaments, et cetera, instead of doing a 33 or 34, you know, long season and then doing the short season in the summer. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. And really up until two years ago, probably the eight or ten years previous, prior to that, I had been doing exactly that. I had been bowling in some kind of a sport caliber condition league and they were short season leagues. We'd go September to the end of December and then pick up in January and go to April and then we'd have a summer session. And what's nice about that is for bowlers that don't want to get beat up with it for 35 weeks and most, a lot of average players just, they're not ready to, to take the psychological beating of that for 35 weeks, but for 10 or 15 weeks, they understand that it's going to help them get better and they're willing to do it. And the, the independent centers that I had worked with bowling those kind of leagues, it was pretty successful. And it's just that, you know, those are two centers, one center, one of them was an independent center that ended up closing. And so, you know, you just don't have that opportunity right now anywhere. But in those 10 years, I was literally bowling a sport league all of that time, just getting my hand in the ball for three or four games a week on a sport condition made me so much sharper than, than maybe, you know, I might go two or three weeks before I can get a practice session on a, on a sport condition. And the difference was significant in how sharp and how much faster I improved over that period. Well, final question I have, and Mike, we're going to have to have you back on again here because I think we could go on, go on and on about trying to, <laughs> to just talk about things. But I guess I want to end with this note regarding coaching. You, you work with a bowler. You said you work, you know, all skill levels. But when you're working with a bowler, do you see any kind of, I guess, keys to their what they need to be doing to help improve their game, whether it be their timing, whether it be early turn, late turn, you know, time, et cetera. What are you seeing from the majority of people out there that really need to work on it? Even just even if you're not working with them, but you're just bowling in your five-person league and you look across the house, what are you seeing as a, a major thing that really, you know, a lot of the bowlers could improve upon? The majority of average bowlers make two mistakes. They're slow getting the ball started in their swing and they want to put too much effort into it and grab the ball 
and try to use upper body force in the downswing and release. And those are the two things that virtually every bowler can work on is getting it into their swing relatively quickly and really feeling that the last step and the release is really an unwinding motion that everything is extending the arm, the wrist is starting to, to collapse and everything becomes an unwind loose, almost bungee cord motion at the release. And those are the two things that virtually every upper intermediate bowler, those are the two mistakes that probably 90% of them make. Well, again, Mike Diaz, I want to thank you for joining me today. been a pleasure and definitely going to have to get you back on. Like I said, we really kind of scratched the surface on, on a bunch of things here, but a pleasure having you on and all the best of luck with your coaching. And Mike, I guess, where can people go if they're interested in coming out and taking a visit and doing a lesson with you? What's the best place where they can find out more information on you? You can go to my website at com pretty easy website, uh, denverbowling.com, or you can email me at coaching at denverbowling.com, and I'd be happy to help you out. Awesome stuff. Great uh, great information, Mike. Before we go, also, a quick note, check out bowlingthismonth.com. Instant access, only $37.95, uh, $37.75 a year, the most trusted technical resource for bowlers. Check everything out there. Great ball reviews, great articles. Uh, I'm looking right now at the website, John Jowdy, a great coach in his own right, has a great piece on hand positions. And we talk, Susie Minchu has a piece on spare shooting. So lots of great stuff. Make sure you check out bowlingthismonth.com. Comes out to about a cup of coffee a, week, a month, rather, for their subscription. So check that out again, bowlingthismonth.com. And Mike, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Kevin. It's been my pleasure. I'd be happy to come on with you anytime.